0: Visit successfulnonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. In this episode, we are going to be having a conversation with Felix Oberholzer G about his book. Better, simpler strategy, a value based guide to exceptional performance. Before I introduce Felix, let me just remind folks that registration is open for our book club. We have up to 12 slots available for the book club, it is only for executive directors. And just as a quick reminder, we're going to be meeting once a month for about 90 minutes. Book club members will get a copy of the book that we're going to read. We're going to be reading some great books, things like The CEO Next Door, The Schmuck in My Office, uh, The Thief in Your Company, The Imagination Machine, etc. And the last thing I just want to make sure that I leave you with about the book club is many of our sessions, probably about a third to half of our sessions are also going to have a 30-minute period when the author comes in and has a conversation with us about the book, and it just kind of elevates our discussion to a whole new level. And now, let me introduce you to Felix Oberholzer G. Felix is an economist and a professor of business administration at Harvard University. His Teaching niche is competitive strategy in the executive education program. And it's interesting because when I read his book, and by the way, I both read his book and also listened to his book on Audible because it was just that good. And when I read his book, Better, Simpler Strategy, I was struck by two things. The first is that this book primarily focuses on for-profit companies, but on almost every single page, I would read something and could actually visualize and think through ways in which that also applies to the nonprofit sector. This is such an incredible book, and I feel fortunate that we have the author on today to discuss it with us. Hey, Felix, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dallas.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, I know in the very beginning part of your book, you have a great story about value when ordering flowers.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, so it's a personal experience. And I sometimes tell this story to illustrate that companies that focus on value, uh, say, as opposed to the service that they provide or as opposed to the products that they that they manufacture, companies that focus on value, this sort of ethos of value creation shows up both in you know, big strategic decisions, but also in the in the smallest of decisions that employees and, and people might make. And that story is, I have a, a friend of mine who lives in Los Angeles, and I sent her flowers for her birthday every year. And then one year, I forgot. I'm not exactly sure what happened. It's usually my calendar, or maybe I didn't pay attention to it. So in any case, three or four days after uh, her birthday. I noticed, oh my God, So her birthday, I didn't send flowers. So I called this flower shop in LA and I ordered my flowers. It's late afternoon and the person asks me, should we send the flowers uh, this afternoon or is it good enough if we do it tomorrow morning? You know, I was a little embarrassed. I said, well, unfortunately I forgot my friend's birthday. It'd be really fantastic if you could send the flowers as quickly as possible. And her reply really took me by surprise. She asked, should we take the blame? Should we say it was our fault that the flowers didn't get to live? And of course, I, I didn't want her to lie for me. But at the same time, it was very interesting, the view of her job. The way she thinks about what she's doing is not she's in the business of selling flowers. She's in the business of creating value for her customers, and that sometimes takes these really unexpected and delightful turns. And that she thinks outside the box what she might be what she might be able to do for her clients. And the story has a perfectly predictable ending. I now get an email a couple of days ahead of my friend's birthday. I order flowers from that store every year, and I will never go somewhere else. Simply because I know they truly and seriously think about value for their customers.
0: And I love that story, Felix. And one of the things I love is not only did they give you value by, hey, saying, should we take the blame? They also, after that, give you value by sending you an email a few days ahead of time saying, hey, Felix, your friend's birthday is coming up. It's like a double value there.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's actually very It's actually very nice. And, and as you might imagine, that store has really beautiful flyers as well.
0: Nice. Nice. And of course, that's part of its value as well. But I, I will say when I was reading your book, it took me back to uh, grad school and the econ courses that I took in grad school. Because oh, I'm because sorry. I, oh, no. I've told you, I, to, I loved econ, which probably says weird, weird things about me. Um, I'll also share with you, Felix, I, I know you have a PhD in economics. I discovered economics about halfway through my graduate program. And literally, Had I discovered it at the beginning of my graduate program, I probably would have had a very different career path. But halfway through, I was like, oh, the opportunity cost of starting over is too great. So I'm not (laughs) going to start over. (laughs) But, um, But so I just, I have to share with you, it took me back to those days because you talk about the concepts of willingness to pay and willingness to sell and how that factors into value. So I'm hoping maybe we can have a little bit of a conversation about that and then pivot to how that's applied in the nonprofit sector.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy, happy, happy to talk about these ideas. So when we say value, we mean very different things. It's one of these squishy terms that many people use, but it's not clear that we have a common understanding. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is both to be very clear about which type of value is connected to the success of organizations. How should we think about that value? And then I try to also make sure that we have reliable ways to measure it. So value-based strategy, the topic of the book, a big part of what I really like is that it's completely data-driven. It's not about anecdotes and narratives. It's about what do we see in the data and how can we conceive of value in a way to make sure that if we create value, we will eventually see success. And so value is really consists of two things. There's two elements to think about. One very intuitive and I think one a little less intuitive, a little less commonly used. The one that's very intuitive is value for customers. And that is the difference between their willingness to pay for a product or a service and the price that I charge. So let me say two things about that. Uh, first, willingness to pay is the maximum a person would ever be willing to pay for a particular product or a particular service. So charge one cent more, $1 more, the person's better off not buying. But that willingness to pay, that appreciation alone tells me not that much if I really create value for the person, because it's really the difference between that willingness to pay and then how much I have to give up for that product or that service. Give you an example. I have a hard time waking up in the morning. Uh, My willingness to pay for that first cup of coffee, $7, $8 easily. I go to Dunkin Donuts, they charge me less than $2. So if you see me in the morning and I seem super happy, super chipper, it's because there's a big difference between willingness to pay and price. So that's value for customers. And then a very similar idea is for all the vendors and all the employees in the organization. And uh, this is a concept called willingness to sell. Willingness to sell in analogy to to how we think about value for customers willingness to sell is the least amount that i need to pay someone in order to have him or her work at my organization so think of the following scenario you have a you have a friend who doesn't work for your organization right now but you would like her to move and you're writing the offer letter and you're thinking about what's the minimum compensation that is required to actually make her move from the current organization to your company. And that, of course, has a lot to do with what work is like. If work at your company is like out of this world, amazing. It's the best job. It's my dream job. Then it takes a little less money to move a person. And so willingness to sell will fall. And um, if the job is, I don't know, dull or maybe dangerous even, then of course, it takes more money and willingness to sell that minimum compensation that I expect will be relatively higher. So think of willingness to sell as sort of a a match between, how good is the match between an employee and a, a particular type of work? And then, as in the customer case, what we actually pay the person is different from that minimum. That reflects... How generous do we want to be? How much competition is there for talent? And so just in literally the same idea as in the relationship with customers, value for employees is the difference between how much we actually pay and that minimum compensation. And if we make work more attractive, if we make it a better job, willingness to sell will fall. And we will have
0: created more of that. Right. And Felix, one of the things, just in that example, I definitely want to jump in on. And um, I know you've written articles for HBR and uh, you've got a really interesting podcast as well, the After Hours podcast. But I also just want to jump in because I know you'd said, OK, that difference, maybe it's generosity, maybe it's competition. I also just want to want to say, and, and I think you're probably in alignment on this. It also is probably a, that difference is also probably your commitment to equity to make sure that you're paying people equitably.
1: Yeah, so it's what's really interesting about willingness to pay and willingness to sell is these are wide open concepts, right? So on the willingness to pay side for customers, it might be the brand of the product. It might be how it makes me feel. It might be some social uh, connotation, like if people see that I have X, Y, Z, how do they think about myself? So willingness to pay includes many, many drivers. And the same is true for willingness to sell at work. Work is not only, you know, the time you literally spend at work. Work is how do I have to dress up in the morning? Uh, what's my commute like? If I make a mistake, will someone yell at me? And so on and so on and so on. So every little facet that influences your experience at work can be made better, and as a result, willingness to sell will fall, and more value is created. It's it's a common mistake to think very narrowly about. What are the ways in which we can improve work experiences? i give you one example that I briefly talk about in the book that I really like. Uh, and you probably know life for retail workers in the United States is quite stressful. Uh, and in part, the stress comes from you learn only about a week or two in advance which shifts you're going to work. And so it makes it really super hard to plan your life. And then in addition, sometimes you get many shifts and sometimes you don't. For the average retail worker in the US, uh, weekly income fluctuates by as much as 40%. So the gap in an experiment, this really interesting thing where they created an app or they partnered with a company that had developed an app and they allow people to trade shifts. Uh, So if I really couldn't be at work because my daughter's sick and I need to stay home, I could make my shift available. If someone wanted extra work in a particular week, they could take my shift. impact of this very simple experiment was tremendous. So within weeks, tens of thousands of shifts got traded. You saw a marked improvement in the performance of stores, in part because you know if you really want to be at work when you're at work, if you don't worry about someone being home, then of course you're doing a better job. And so same store sales went up. But also willingness to sell fell quite dramatically. Uh, one thing that I think is really is particularly remarkable is that parents who are kids, they reported sleeping much better after the introduction of this app. And so I always encourage both in the relationship with customers, but also in the relationship with employees or uh, for, the, for the nonprofit sector, in the relationship with volunteers, think about every aspect of that relationship and every aspect that can be made better will lead to value creation for the employee, for the volunteer, or for the customer.
0: And it's interesting, like, that's exactly what I was thinking about it while I was reading this book. We, we live in such an unusual time right now when it comes to recruiting new staff members as well as retaining the staff members that you have. And really, that recruitment piece and, and actually retaining your staff and staff retention is really about bringing your staff that value.
1: That's exactly right. And I can do it in two ways, right? So I can either increase compensation, and that's part of what we see right now. And then, of course, I'll be more attractive. I'll be more competitive in the market for account, or I can make jobs a better job. And the difference between the two is if you just pay more, it's of course true that employees, and if you have volunteers that get paid, they will love it because who doesn't like money? But at the same time, your costs go up and your organization will be less competitive uh, in the for-profit sector. The investors will probably have a lower return. In the nonprofit sector, you'll have to fundraise more aggressively because your costs have gone up. If you make a job a better job and you lower willingness to sell, that's actually not zero sum, like increasing wages that is truly creating value for your employees or your volunteers. And so the organization can be better off and the employees and the volunteers can be better off. So this this orientation towards value creation as opposed to just shifting value back and forth, uh, that I think is is really one of the foundations of both corporate success and then success in the nonprofit sector
0: also. And I'm especially glad that you've been mentioning volunteers because that's one that I was thinking about as well as I was reading the book because as nonprofits, when we're out seeking volunteers we're looking for a willingness to sell at zero. But there's (laughs) still some willingness to pay on our part because we've got to coordinate them whether it's one staff person that does it and that's their job or it's a part of everybody's job. You've got to coordinate the volunteers. You've got to support them. You've got to recognize them etc. So there's some inherent indirect costs maybe in, in willingness to pay but you're still asking people, you know, to sell head zero.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And so their passions, interest in the cause, the purpose of the organization, all of these things that we know lower anyone's willingness to sell, right? That's true for in the for-profit sector. That's not, that's true in the nonprofit sector. Uh, all of these motivations that then make us really want to do something they lower willingness to sell and as you point out sometimes willingness to sell can even be negative like i would do something not only for free but you know i travel many miles to go to some event that i find particularly meaningful uh, or i donate my time at some cost to me as a person uh, because i really believe in whatever the activity happens to be it's funny on the one hand, of course, in the for-profit sector, we've gotten so used to we have to pay for everything. But then when you think about your life as a whole, there are so many things you do, and you would never, ever think about even think about asking for compensation. So say, imagine like you have friends over for dinner. <laughs> of course, you're not going to charge your friends, right? That's all about the value of the activity. And while we've gotten used to being paid for the jobs that we hold, and that's, of course, important, that we pay people fairly and equitably, there are so many activities in our lives where willingness to sell is not only zero, but it's negative. It's a real pleasure doing these kinds of activities. And, and we, would never, we would never even dream of asking for compensation.
0: Right, right. The other thing is I was thinking about how this applies to nonprofits is also around when nonprofits seek uh, grants and contracts. So, you know, so when they're out seeking a grant or a contract, maybe, for example, I don't know, to um, provide meal service for homeless people, let's say, you know, the, the organization might say to itself, okay, the minimum we could do this for is. I'm going to make this up $50,000. But if there's a funder that they could find and they could provide enough value to who would be willing to pay them a hundred thousand dollars to do it again, value probably means they're providing better food. They're also providing more updates to the funder, et cetera. That value difference is there. And it's a, it's literally a $50,000 difference. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that. I think that's a, that's a really, that's a really interesting question. And sometimes When I uh, teach uh, in executive courses or even in MBA courses, people come up and they ask, oh, you know, this value-based strategy sounds really attractive. We know from lots of empirical studies that it makes organizations really successful. But does it, you know, like I'm in a nonprofit, does it really apply? So here are the differences to think about. And. Uh, what's really interesting is that there are many more commonalities than differences. Mm-hmm. So how you think about your client's willingness to pay, say in the example of someone who uh, who cannot feed themselves, someone who relies on food assistance, in terms of willingness to pay, there's no difference between for-profit and uh, non-profit. In the for-profit sector, we'll call customer centricity, uh, is exactly important for nonprofits as well, that you understand the people you would like to support, and that you do the kinds of things that are most meaningful for them, always taking their willingness to pay as a measure of what you do and what you don't do. Now, the difference is, of course, that in the for-profit sector, we would then charge. We would set some price that covers the cost. And in the nonprofit sector, that price is sometimes a uh, a nominal charge. That price is sometimes zero. But when it comes to value creation, the willingness to pay side of things, there's actually no difference between a for-profit manager and a non-profit manager. And then the same is true on the willingness to sell side, uh, how we make it attractive for volunteers to come to our nonprofit. Uh, is not different from how we make it attractive to any employee to work for for for-profit organization, with the exception that in one case, you get paid, and in the other case, you probably don't, we probably don't get paid. I think maybe the last difference between the two sectors is in the nonprofit world, there's a lot of competition on the willingness to sell side. There's a lot of competition for funding. There's a lot of competition for volunteers, time. Uh, and there isn't quite as much competition on the willingness to pay side. In fact, nonprofits often collaborate in ways that we would never allow for-profit organizations to do. Where any trust will come in and say, "No, no, you can talk. You cannot collaborate in this particular way." In the nonprofit world, and for a good reason, um, collaboration on the willingness to pay side is actually is actually quite common. But the, the sort of The the major components of competition are really, how do I get funding? And then how do I get volunteers to work for my organization? For for for-profits, competition is much more evenly balanced. They face competition both on the willingness to pay side, but also in willingness to sell terms.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting. I know when you were saying... And I agree with you that in a lot of cases, nonprofits could do things that if a for-profit did, they would be accused of antitrust. And and I think that's a, a good segue for us to talk about complements versus substitutes, which you also talk about in this book. And I think it's just so applicable for nonprofits.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think complements are particularly important to think about. Uh, if any organization that I studied for the book uh, that had really success over long periods of time, um, they had compliments of some sort, sometimes compliments that they produce in-house, sometimes compliments that are produced by someone else. So a compliment is a product or a service that increases willingness to pay for some other product or service. Uh, We all know the famous example, so razor, razor blade, printer and cartridges, Um, your smartphone and applications for the smartphone. So always think about a pair of products or a pair of services. And the interesting thing is as the price of one part of the complement pairs falls, willingness to pay for the other pair goes up. So the reason that we get to buy buy printers at really, really, really low prices is because if the printer is really inexpensive, our willingness to pay for the cartridges will go up. Uh, In the case of Razor, Razor Blade, we even almost give away the Razor and then make all our money off of the blade. Now, why is this interesting for nonprofits? Often when you see that you have a great idea, you think you provide a really attractive service, and then you don't quite get the response that you expected. Often the reason that you don't get the right response is that, there's some complement that is uh, really important for the consumption of that service that is missing. i give you a for-profit example uh, that I think illustrates the the principle and is a a very nice story. There's a movie theater chain in Arizona uh, called the Harkins Theaters. And if you were to sit in a Harkins Theater, the first thing that you will probably notice is that there are many young couples and young parents in the audience, which is a little unusual because typically, we, in a typical movie theater, that demographic is not, is not uh, uh, overly represented. So why is this? What complement does Harkins Theaters offer? They have babysitting services at the movie theater. And the story how that uh, service got introduced is actually quite interesting. The CEO of Harkins, he had young kids, And then at that moment, he realized, oh, my God, I'm a professional in the industry, and I can't even go to the movie theater because I have young kids. And so he came up with this idea of adding babysitting services to the movie experience. And there's two things that are, I think, illustrative here for compliments. Often, compliments live at some distance from your core service. It's not really what we think we ought to do, or it's not really the kind of service area that we typically think about but you know you run a movie theater you think about parking you think about food you think about babysitting services you think about all of these services that live at some distance to the core of what you do but they're really important because they increase willingness to pay for the movie going experience itself and then the second principle here as always is that you know there's if you, if you can think of a service that doesn't have compliments, please let me know, because I've been looking for years. Everything has compliments, but we often get so used to them that we don't really take them into consideration. So I'll give you a simple example. If I asked you, you know, what's your willingness to pay for a car? I have no idea, like $40,000, $50,000. Now think about cars without compliments. No roads no gas stations, no repair shops, no GPS. Oh my God, all of a sudden a car is not all, all that useful. Why? Oh, because the willingness to pay, the value that we derive from cars really depends on the availability and the price of these components. And so for every nonprofit organization, I think it's it's really critical to understand what else needs to be in place for our target group to optimally benefit from the services that we provide? Uh, Do they have the right information? Is there transportation if you have to travel to some particular particular location? Do we have the right language skills and so on? Like every, every facet of the service, you need to think about, is there something else that needs to be in place for me to consume that service?
0: I love that. And I I love your examples because it drives it home just so really clearly. And I'll share with you, Felix, so often I think this is an area where nonprofits really struggle. And so as an example, you mentioned, can our clients get to us? Do they need transportation? And I can't tell you how many times I've heard an organization say to me, yeah, our biggest barrier for service is transportation or our biggest barrier to service is food because clients have to Go stand in line in a soup kitchen or go stand in line um, at a food bank instead of coming to us.
1: Yes, it's so, it's so important. And one exercise that I would recommend is uh, try to do a client journey where sort of minute by minute by minute you're thinking about what does our typical client's day look like? And then what needs to happen for that client to show up where we provide our services or uh, require our services in some fashion. And often as you think about every minute of a client's life, that makes it much more likely that you, actually the things we take for granted, things you and I never think about, but they may not be in place for our clients. And then that's a real opportunity to add even more value and because it's adding more value, it makes, the, it makes the organization more successful over long periods of time.
0: When I was reading about client journeys in your book, one of the things I thought about and it really, really hit home for me is, you know, in the nonprofit sector, we can spend so much time thinking about our donors' journeys, i.e., how do they come to know us? How do they make their first gift or second? How do they give more? And don't spend nearly as much time thinking about our client's journey.
1: Yes. And I think the same is then also true for volunteers, right? What needs to be in place, what needs to be there for the right kind of volunteer to be attracted to your person. So one thing that's really important to think about is whenever you increase willingness to pay for your clients, or whenever you decrease willingness to sell for donors or for volunteers, you get two effects. One is just You created more value and as a result, you're gonna be more successful. But the second effect is equally and sometimes even more important. Depending on how you increased willingness to pay or how you decreased willingness to sell, you get a particular selection effect. And that selection effect that now says, oh my God, like I'm a donor to several organizations and the way they lowered my willingness to sell That was exactly what I was looking for. And so I'm magically attracted to that type of an organization. It it strikes me when, and this is maybe more my personal experience, when when I look at what organizations that I donate to, what they do for their donors, there's a particular kind of sameness. You know, it's the dinners, it's the sort of, experience a little bit what the client, what the clients uh, experience as a result of the service. It doesn't strike me that there's a whole lot of imagination. And that just means I'm looking now at all of these organizations. I wish I could help all of them, but not many of them really stand out other than their purpose is something that really attracts me. But once you start thinking about the donors' total experience, of course I'm attracted to particular nonprofit organizations because I really like the work that they do. I really, I somehow their their purpose speaks to me. But what other experiences can you can you offer your donors? What can you do in order to really stand out as an organization so that you then get exactly the kind of donors? That say have a particularly long-term vision or care deeply about health, or whatever your desired profile is. Think very carefully about: Are there ways to drive down their willingness to sell so that you get the right kind of person? I give you, uh, I give you two uh, for-profit examples just to illustrate the mechanism. And um, if you look at the uh, demographics of Uber driver, one of the interesting things is there are twice as many women driving for Uber than for regular taxi companies. And you would think, oh my God, like, what well, this is about, like, why is it much more likely that women drive for Uber than for taxi companies? And the answer is, of course, we did two things on the willingness to pay side. We created a job that was safer and a job that's very flexible. And that's particularly attractive to women. Um, there's a, a hospital group in Florida, BayCare, there, well-known for the quality of their training programs. It's really quite astounding. And that has two effects. Of course, if you're a patient at BayCare, you get amazing service because uh, everyone is really well-trained. But also think about the selection of it. Who ends up working at that hospital? Oh, everybody who thinks lifelong learning is really important, is really attractive. And so BayCare has this almost interesting dual advantage in that they both have highly qualified people, but they also have the kind of person who's looking to be trained over long periods of time. Whenever you lower willingness to sell, whenever you increase willingness to pay, you get both of these. You get to create more value, but you also get a selection effect. And as you think about what should we do for our volunteers? What should we do for our donors? Think both about the value creation part but also think about the selection part. If we offer, I don't know, say a classical concert, well, who is going to find that particularly attractive? That's the kind of donor or that's the kind of volunteer uh, that you might that you might attract.
0: Mm-hmm. Felix, I I really I so enjoyed your book, and I'm I'm so grateful you've been able to spend some time with us today. Before we start to move on with the podcast. I've got to ask you an off-the-map question. And we ask every guest an off-the-map question. It is just a way for our guests to get to know you a little bit better. And I think I've got a good one. Um, It's (laughs) tangent. Although, unfortunately, sometimes my off-the-map question is not that far off the map. So this is probably tangentially related. But, you know, you had mentioned that you don't get a lot of great thank yous from the organizations that you give to. You get maybe an experience or, you know, or a note or something like that. I'm curious what is the best thank you that you've received from an organization that you've given to.
1: There was an organization that I that I supported that was uh, that gave food and they offered sort of a behind the scenes view of how the logistics of the food business works so they get a lot of food from established supermarkets and they created a day where you both learned like it was just amazing to see like how complicated and how ingenious the logistics is around food and then how the for-profit and the non-profit sector intersect where they collaborate where they sometimes compete uh, and to sort of have a sense of the wider system that you know, sometimes surfaces really well. And then to also come to understand why is it that in a country as rich as the United States, how can it even be that food is like a serious concern for so many families? So it it was really just a sort of a behind the scenes look that gave me an even deeper appreciation for what that particular organization did, but also make me, made me understand much better how can how can it even be that this is a big problem that we can't seem to that we can't seem to solve easily having to do with you know what happens to surplus and farming and so on and so on. So I thought it was just the perfect match. But again I don't I didn't mean to say so much that I don't feel gratitude and I don't get thank yous, but there's a, a sameness to the gratitude and the thank yous and how they are expressed. And what was really special about what this particular organization was, that this was a memorable experience that my wife and I sometimes talk about and that I think will stay with us for a very long time.
0: Wow. And and I'm also grateful that you, because you're right, when you said, when you shared that story originally, you had said... Yeah, there's just a sameness. It does not rise above the level, and so I apologize. I probably misrepresented that a little bit because you absolutely were feeling gratitude. You're just like, okay, I've gotten this before, and I love that behind the scenes experience. I've gotten something like that with an organization oh, as really? well. Okay, and
1: it's nice, right? It's very special,
0: right? Exactly. Yeah, like like when you get to see the guts and you get to see how you know how it actually is made. You're like, wow. Okay, n- now I feel even more apart and more allied with this organization.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Felix, thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to make sure listeners know about two things. The first is make sure you pick up a copy of Felix's book, Better, Simpler Strategy, A Value-Based Guide to Exceptional Performance. You can get that um, on Amazon. You also can get it um, from Harvard Business Press. And, um, And so we will post the link to that in the show notes. Additionally, as I may have mentioned before, Felix is one of the co-hosts of After Hours Podcast. It is a very fun podcast. It has other Harvard Business School professors who essentially it's after hours and they discuss and debate current events and lots, lots more. So you're obviously got a podcast streamer. Pick up your podcast streamer and search for After Hours Podcast. We'll also link to that in the show notes. Hey, Felix, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Dolph.
1: It It was a real pleasure.
0: All right, listeners, please do not forget, go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. You can check out our show notes. You can see how to get Felix Oberholzer-G's book, as well as how to get the podcast. And if you liked this episode, I want you to think about two others. One is episode 198, Tools to Fire Up Your Productivity with Peter Chattel. And the second is episode 206, The Dangers of Efficiency with Roger Martin. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I say this all the time as I close the show, but just a quick reminder, I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is, surprise, surprise, for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. Please don't rely on any podcast for this. If you find yourself in need of professional services like that, find a qualified, licensed professional who can counsel you. And if you're not sure what type of professional you need or who to reach out to, you can contact me. I'm happy to help you think through what type of professional you might need. And if I know someone, I am happy to link you up.